Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, November 5th. We begin with the ongoing saga of the U.S. federal election. With ballots still being counted in many key states, we get the latest from Keith Brownsey, political science professor from Mount Royal University. While it may seem like a dream come true, working from home, as many of us have done during the pandemic, can be quite stressful. We get some tips on how to prevent burnout from a clinical psychologist. November is Family Violence Prevention Month. We hear about the shocking increase of incidents in our city during this time of increased isolation and about the resources available from the Calgary Counseling Centre. And finally, things are about to get hairy with the kickoff of Movember. 770CHQR roving reporter Dave McIver looks at the cause behind this special month, men's health issues. It is 642, and as of this morning, Democrat Joe Biden has 264 electoral college votes, uh, Donald Trump 214, and with just a handful of states still up for grabs, Biden is one battleground state away from reaching the 270 magic mark. Donald Trump says he wants to go to court. Does he have a leg to stand on? Joining us to discuss is Keith Brownsey, political science professor at Mount Royal University. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. It seems Biden is getting closer and closer to that 270. But Donald Trump, he says he's going to do whatever he can to try and stop what's going on. The the counting even. He doesn't want any counting to be done. (laughs) This has just gotten so bizarre, hasn't it? Well, it is. I mean, Mr. Trump has been what they call a norm breaker. He's broken every convention in American politics. And yet um, here he is. He's very close to a second term. He won't get it now. I mean, Mr. Biden is just about to flip that. One more state, such as Nevada, will have Biden at the magic 270 uh, number, which is, are, is a just over one vote over uh, is just a majority of the Electoral College in the United States. Hmm. So, Keith, if that does happen, if Biden hits that magic 270 yeah. What could be done? I mean, a recount, we were talking about this earlier on the program. When Donald Trump says recount, we're not talking any re. Uh, the votes that are being <laughs> counted are being counted for the first time. <laughs> That's right. Um, we've got to finish or they have to finish counting those votes in places like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada. Um, they have to be counted first. But uh, Mr. Trump has a uh, a way to victory if uh, a Wisconsin recount comes in, and there are 10 electoral electoral votes in Wisconsin, he could uh, deny Mr. Biden the presidency just for a little while. It would take about a, a week to uh, pursue a, a recount in Wisconsin, but they still haven't finished counting all of the votes in Wisconsin yet. Are there so it's a little early here to talk about that. Yeah, no doubt. Looking forward, though, potentially, are there rules around when you can call for a recount or not? Well, it doesn't matter. It's it, Mr. At Trump, any point. isn't it? Yeah, well, I guess that's uh, so true. He's going rules to out the window. Ma- yeah, they're out the window. But in a place such as uh, Wisconsin, if you're under 1%, you can uh, ask for a recount. Um, you, if it's if Mr. Biden wins the state by 1.5%, Mr. Trump will still go to co- court uh, claiming some sort of malfeasance on the part of vote counters for whatever reason and challenge the rule and demand a recount that's what's going to happen well at least somebody has the answer for us i'm wondering keith (laughs) you know as a political science professor and this might be (laughs) kind of a just out there question have we ever seen anything like this or have you ever seen anything like this at what's happening well i'm not old enough to really have seen this and i'm you know I'm in the pensioner category <laughs> age now. Um, but if we go back to the United States in 17, uh, 1876, 
And you had the Democrat, Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, running against uh, Rutherford Hayes, the uh, Republican. And uh, it went to Congress, and Hayes won the presidency by one vote. It was after that that a lot of the rules were changed. Now, it was obvious fraud on the part of the Republicans. They made a deal with Democrats. Um, and Hayes's nickname became Rutherford B. Hayes. <laughs> so, I mean, there is historical precedent in the United States for this. But uh, they thought they'd left all this behind 150 years ago. Well, they haven't. The United States is facing this really serious um, legal and constitutional crisis over the presidency. And really with, the, you know, the House and the Senate not really changing very much, it doesn't look, no matter who gets in, it's it, things are just going to grind to a halt like they have been over the years anyway, aren't they? Well, yeah. If you remember back to the last few days of the campaign, maybe the last uh, week or so, uh, the Democrats finally figured out that Mitch McConnell had been stalling them in the Senate. <laughs> there isn't a relief bill, and they're in the middle of this horrendous pandemic in the United States. What are they going to do with people who are uh, tossed out in the street for not paying their rent? What about health care costs? Um, I mean, it, the, the world is coming apart in the U.S. They're spinning out of control. And that's Mr. Trump's uh, modus operandi. That's how he operates. Well, you know, I guess uh, we'll just uh, continue to wait and see mm-hmm. and uh, remember your words and uh, see if they hold true. Because uh, you know, any, <laughs> nobody so, uh, has any exact idea, but some great theories there. We appreciate it, Keith. Oh, well, my pleasure. Good stuff. Keith Brownsey, political science professor from Mount Royal University. 609 on the morning news. Rolling out of bed and getting straight to work might seem uh, like a dream come true. But it could cause serious burnout. Clinical psychologist Manit Batya joins us now with some tips to stay fresh when working from home. Good morning to you, Manit. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. It's interesting because uh, those who have not done it, you know, outside looking in, it does indeed look like the dream. But it might be more challenging. That's something you're here to tell us. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. As you said in your in your intro there, it sounds like a great idea. You know, work starts at 8 o'clock, you roll out of bed at 7.30, 7.45, and hop onto your laptop and start your day. But what I'm finding is, you know, clinically talking to people and patients is, you know, these, you know, jumping into your day without a transition into work, and then at the end of your day, transitioning, you know, from work to home is creating a lot more stress. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit. We need our routine. So, you know, what happens is in the morning, you know, in the past, prior to COVID, we would get up at a particular time, you know, make our breakfast, get ready, perhaps do an early morning workout, listen to a podcast or a radio show as you're driving into work or taking uh, public transportation. And these transitions allowed for you to, you know, to build in some healthy physical and mental uh, wellness checks, as well, you know, being out in nature, getting fresh air. Um, and also provides a sense of buffers from, you know, from, you know, getting ready for the stress that is work. Um, so I think it's really important for us to reassess this idea of just jumping into work and then jumping out of work. We really need to create those routines and those transitions that we kind of took for granted when we were working and from working from the offices, rather, and that we thought would be a nice luxury to not to have when we started working from home.
Makes a lot of sense, Manny. I mean, really just easing into that workday, right? Where we have to buckle down and really just focus in on the job and the task at hand. And I would imagine, too, people being at home, you kind of don't take those breaks that you might at work where if someone comes by, you stop to talk to them or you, you get up and stretch your legs. Are people sort of, you know, locked in at home and they, they, don't, they don't give themselves that, that a little bit of time to breathe here and there through the day either? Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's a really good point. And I think it's so important now, especially because there's, you know, we're, it's, it's you and the laptop in a room, perhaps, or, or a computer, and, and you can get really bogged into your work. So, and there's, it's a very, you know, it can be very isolating and, you know, and, and quite frankly, lonely to be working from home and not being around your team or coworkers and colleagues. So what I talk about is a virtual uh, water cooler where, you know, at the office, you get up for 10 minutes, you stretch, you, you know, you go have some water, chat about something social, you know, and have conversations and, and, and connect with people. So what I'm encouraging people to do in their days working from home is create those 10 to 15 minute moments where if you got to take an audio call at work or some meeting, do it while you're taking a walk outside or have a phone call with a friend, you know, for 10, 15 minutes or a, a Zoom call to break up your day. But to create those 10 to 15 minute breaks that you would otherwise have had, uh, at work, but implement them and make them a priority as part of your day from home so that you're breaking up your day, creating some social moments, some, you know, um, changes in your schedule. And also, if you can, to do things outside as we're getting into winter and I know it gets really cold, but with COVID and lockdowns and all that, we need to try to find ways to also have those water cooler moment, moments even outside to get that fresh air. So you're mentioning all these different elements to, to make it feel, you know, more work-like and more like the office environment. Uh, but I would I would think that from what you're saying, we literally have to put this in the calendar or on that old school daytimer and follow it, not just do these things willy nilly whenever we want through the day. Absolutely, I think there needs to be a real uh, you know intention and attitude towards setting healthy routines and boundaries. And like you said, great point is scheduling it into your day. And it may sound very basic, but it's important. So ten o'clock, I'll take a ten minute break. Um, and also, it's very important, the key word here is to be able to create boundaries around your day. So, so for example, working from home, you know, you need to prioritize, obviously, your work, but you have to prioritize your mental health. And also being able to create those boundaries where, you know, if you're living with a family member or your partner or kids or a roommate, you know, it's starting to create that space that's separate from work, that is, uh, that is strictly a home and work. Uh, you can create that balance and that separation and making sure that even at the end of the day, I want to make this point, which is so important, you know, tying it back to transitions is, you know, in the past, you finish work at five o'clock, you catch the bus, you catch, you know, your, your ride. And you had that transition, but working from home, the flip side also happens at, at the end of the day where you can just continue to work indefinitely into the evening. So it's really creating those hard line boundaries and saying, okay, I'm checking out right now. I'm logging out. I'm done for the day, or I'm taking my break here and I'm not going to you know, um, negotiate that. I'm going to actually make that as part of my required routine. And maybe that's as simple as setting your alarm for, you know, that 10 minute break, whatever time you want to schedule that in and, and setting your alarm for when your workday should end, that sort of thing. Are you also a big proponent of, uh, you know, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, even if it's just throwing on your sweats, that sort of, uh, you know, a, a daily routine as well to get yourself into the work mode? Absolutely. I, I, I highly encourage, you know, people to do that and to, to even... To, to some extent with the can, you know, dress like you're going to work, right? Especially the tops, I guess, right? Because nowadays with the, with the computer and the Zoom, we can kind of, you know, maybe keep our sweats on and put like a dress shirt or something on. But I really 
there's a psychological component to that. I mean, obviously taking a shower, you know, brushing your teeth, you know, you feel better, you feel uh, re-energized, charged, and dressing up, you know, psychologically, it can also give you a sense of confidence, you feel like you're, you know, you, you look good. So those are healthy boosts for your self-esteem, and it, it also has a different, it gives you a different attitude and outlook on your day, and it gives you a sense of, okay, I'm actually going into work. And then also at the end of the day, like when you then have to change out of it, it's also in addition to what you said about setting an alarm or like, you know, having a buzzer to log off, you're also then changing out of your work clothes, which again, programs your brain to say, okay, Manit, you're done for the day, take off your dress shirt, put on your sweats and now have your evening. So that also can create and force almost that kind of separation in our mind about work and home. Manit, how can we recognize signs of burnout in ourselves or perhaps in our spouse or or roommate that we, uh, you know, can see working from home that uh, may have taken it too far and and might not realize it? That's a really important question. There's, there are several layers to burnout and, you know, it can start off, um, you know, physical, uh, emotional, mental exhaustion. So if you're noticing you're more tired, you're not uh, sleeping well, you're noticing things like headaches, you're a little more irritable, um, and also you're starting to feel a sense of kind of like cynicism and doubt with your work and maybe more pessimism. I also hear people are starting to lose meaning in their work and they're just feeling like overwhelmed. Uh, things like feeling sluggish and dragging your feet and just kind of like, you know, trucking along, but not in a way that is energizing or rewarding. And if that's all relative for everybody. Everyone, everyone has a different, you know, uh, relationship with work, but it's mm-hmm. really looking at that looking at how you used to be versus where you are. So the thing I always tell people is to continuously check in and ask yourself this question every day is, how am I, how am I feeling today? How's, you know, how's my body feeling? And how am I taking care of myself? And also paying attention to people in your life, whether it's your partner or roommates, if you're noticing changes in their behaviors as well. And that's likely a sign that obviously they're dealing with some, some stress. And we live in such an uncertain time. It's, you know, I want to say this as well. This is not you know, something to be ashamed of or or worried about in the sense of being like, I'm not normal, quote unquote. This is very normal to feel these things right now, given the the weight of the world that we're all kind of experiencing and we're trying to process. So paying attention to those kind of symptoms and those experiences, and that's likely a sign that perhaps you're maybe overworking, not creating healthy transitions and having good work-life balance and trying to start with implementing these steps and of course, if you need some help, you know, you can always call someone, you know, a mental health professional to get some support. Great information, Manny. Thank you so much for joining us. An important topic to cover. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That is clinical psychologist Manny Batia. All right. Uh, we have on the line now Dr. Robbie Babins-Wagner, uh, expert saying Calgary experiencing a shadow pandemic when it comes to domestic violence during COVID-19. And victims may have decreased opportunities to report those incidents because they're feeling so isolated right now. So uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how things are in Calgary right now in terms of, of numbers and, and certainly cases of domestic violence. They've been on the rise through this pandemic, haven't they? They have. What what um, what police are telling us is that uh, for the period for the period January to September of this year, um, they've seen an increase in nine percent of people calling with a domestic violence um, concern. A lot of those are verbal uh, p- verbal um, disputes or verbal arguments or disagreements with their partners that are escalating to the point the police are called. But in many of those circumstances, there is nothing chargeable about the verbal uh, fight. And they've had 15,000 cases in total. 
15,038 cases in total, and about 12,087 of those were those kinds of calls. There's all, there has been just under 3,000 cases that where there was a, where there was a more clearly domestic violence, and there was there were charges, but that was 10% lower than last year. So what we're uh, wondering about is um, it's surprising to us actually that there are fewer charges being made, um, and the types of calls that the police are getting are different. And we wonder if because people are spending more time at home, because they have uh, less flexibility or places where they may feel safe to call, um, we're wondering whether that's uh, why we're seeing fewer um, um, charges being made mm. and whether that, in fact, is a shadow epidemic. Well, legit question. So I'm wondering from a perspective of the Calgary Counseling Centre, what uh, what can be done and what would you suggest to people, maybe somebody who's listening right now who is in a place of violence, uh, the route that they can take the, to still feel safe and yep. uh, report an incident? I w- if it was me, I would be... Um, uh, trying to go for a walk. A lot of people are going for walks during these times where they may not make calls from home and go outside and make the call. Go visit a friend if that's possible. If you have a friend within your cohort, um, go there and see if they can make the call. Have somebody, if that's possible, make the call for you. But always do it in a place that's safe. Go see your family doctor. Your family doctor can intervene on your behalf or allow you to make the call from their office. Um, any health professional will allow you to do that. Mm, that is that is good to know. You know, and, and Robbie, it is Family Violence Prevention Month, and yep. it, so it's important that we continue to talk about this, isn't it? Just not this month, but always. We need to make sure that everybody knows that there is help out there, and it's just not okay to be in that kind of a situation. Absolutely, and Calgary is a wonderful community. We have a lot of resources. The community is well prepared to get people to the right place. So anybody you talk to, um, any professional, will will do their best to get you to the right place to get the help you need. We thank you so much, and it's important that we continue to talk to you and to uh, all of your partners in, in this kind of, uh, you know, make sure that we get the, the voices heard and the, and the message out there. So thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Dr. Robbie Babbins-Wagner with the Calgary Counseling Centre. She is the CEO there. CalgaryCounseling.com is the website. If you are needing any help immediately, the Family Violence Information Line 310-1818 is available in more than 170 languages, available to support Albertans at any time of the day. 310-1818. Well, it is 8.41, and this month is called Movember. It's a month where a large focus is put on men's health, and our roving reporter, Dave McIver, did a story on men's mental health. I sat in my bedroom nine years ago, and my heart was beating out of my chest. It was a Wednesday evening, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I couldn't stop worrying about something. What it was, I have no idea. I had just gotten into the broadcasting program at Mount Royal University, I had a full-time job, and everything in my life was starting to fall into place. So why was I feeling this way? Well, I had actually been feeling this way for about three years now. The only thing that was different about this night compared to every other night for the last three years was I was going to talk to someone about it. That conversation probably saved my life, and it could save someone else's too. That's why November or Movember is so important to me. It's a month where a lot of the world's focus is on men's health and men's mental health, and there is an organization that brings it to the forefront. The numbers aren't great in Alberta. I chatted with Scott McCurdy, a counseling therapist at the Canadian Mental Health Association in Calgary, and I asked him about the numbers involving men and suicide. The vast majority of of suicide deaths in Alberta, 75%, 
are men. And it used to be uh, slightly younger men, but now we're seeing a bit of a shift. And about half of that 75% are now men between 40 and 64 years old. Now, what we often assume and hear is that men are reticent to talk about their feelings. I asked Scott, why is that? Uh, I think that is a complex question, and I think it's really multi-layered. I think one of the reasons, I think you could go all the way back and say that one of the reasons uh, why men, well, the assumption exists that men are reticent to talk about mental health is the way that men and boys are kind of uh, uh, brought up, seen by society, treated when we're younger. And I think it makes such a difference to how we behave and how we feel we're allowed to behave in adulthood. I'm thinking about things like uh, boys being rewarded for being brave and strong and tough. You know, get up, dust yourself off. Uh, well done, kid. You you shook it off. You you didn't show you were hurt, and you you carry on that kind of hustle, hustle, hustle mentality. Mm-hmm. And I think when we do that, even though our intentions are 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 are, are good, like almost all of the time, I think we condition uh, boys who then become men into thinking: if I don't feel like that, if I'm struggling, if I don't feel brave, if I don't feel strong, I've somehow failed. And I don't know what to do with that. It feels like a kind of a, a, a deep inherent failure on my my part that I haven't uh, I haven't reached what was expected of me. And that's a really difficult position for a man to be in to suddenly switch and show that vulnerability and say, I don't feel tough anymore. I don't feel strong and I don't feel brave. Enter the Movember movement. 16 years ago, a group wanted to address men's health, originally focusing on prostate cancer by encouraging men to grow mustaches and have conversations. But over the years, they've expanded the movement to include men's mental health. Mitch Hermanson is the Western Canadian lead with Movember, and I asked him why the shift to also include men's mental health and the conversation we need to have there. When you look at the mental health side of things, you know, that's a space where we really need to start more conversations and, and have more focus. Um, it may surprise a lot of people, but in Canada, three out of four suicides are by men. Um, and across Canada, suicide is the second leading cause of death for men between the ages of 15 and 44. So this is, this is a massive issue uh, that are impacting men. And in November, we really wanted to use you know our campaign and our cause to shine a light on it because as bad as some of these stats are, the truth is, Suicide is preventable. It doesn't need to be this way. And so uh, we really want, you know, all the men in our lives, fathers, sons, brothers, and friends, to live healthier, happier, longer lives. And that's why we want to take action for this really serious cause. So I asked Scott, what can we do? What can we do for boys and men to make it easier for everyone to speak out about their feelings? I think we can do, there's a, a number of things, even just shifting our mentality around labels. So that words like brave and strong have a, a kind of a, a much more wide-ranging meaning. So we reward boys for being brave, for saying they're sorry, or telling us they're upset, or telling us they're scared of something. We use words like strong and tough and brave to to reflect those things, those feelings, that kind of that showing that vulnerability, to allowing, giving them space, and rewarding them for showing that they're really struggling. If we can do that at a young age, 
uh, I really believe it will make a difference uh, as men get older. And as far as you know, men who are men today, what what can we do? Is we talk often about how men don't reach out, and we put the emphasis on men to reach out. But if we can put the emphasis on everybody, and let everybody know that when, if and when a man does reach out, allow them to do that. Give them space. Don't try and problem solve. Show them you're there. Allow that anything they say will be okay. You won't panic. You'll let them know that you're there for them. You'll let them know that you'll help them get what they need. But just allow that space, that listening space to exist. Let them know that if they do reveal themselves, we'll really, really be there. Lastly, I asked both men, Scott and Mitch, if we are struggling, what can we do? Two-word answer to do it. But to, to expand on that, people will listen. This assumption that, uh, that, that men don't speak out, that there's no space for men. I have never met anyone in this profession, male or female, uh, or, or, or anyone who identifies as anything who believes that, who will not give men the space. People are there. You will be seen, you will be heard, and you will be given space by anyone anyone you reach out to in this profession. What's really important is that, you know, men recognize it's, you know, important to take action for our health. When something doesn't feel right, um, whether that's physical or mental, we need to take action. That could be talking to your, your GP. It could be talking to a friend about your mental health. Guys, if you're struggling, talk to someone. If you think one of your friends is struggling, talk to them. There are resources and tools out there for all of us. I'm Dave McIver with Global News Radio, 770 CHQR.